Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts, including youtube.com slash at mediapeoplepodcast. Views expressed by participants are personal. The title producer is everywhere in show business. But what exactly does a producer do? It's a bit of a loaded question as responsibilities can vary, but it's a question that today's guest, Jody Davis, will answer for us. Jody has spent over 20 years in television, and there's a good chance you're familiar with his work. Jody has worked on many of the major Canadian awards shows, including the Juno and Gemini Awards. He was entertainment producer on Toronto One's The A-List before getting the chance to executive produce ET Canada. Jody Davis stops by to chat about growing up in Uxbridge, Ontario, simultaneously attending both York University and Seneca College, a producer's collective duties, and what it's like producing Canada's biggest entertainment news show. I'm an entertainment executive. I was the executive producer at Entertainment Tonight Canada for the past 17 years. Um, as well, right now, I'm a broadcast and digital consultant working with um, broadcast and digital companies to help them improve on their uh, social media platform and their sort of broadcast reach, um, giving them assessments and, and recommendation on their editorial content and figure out a way that they can make money on, on digital platforms. I'm really excited you stopped by today. I do not get a lot of people that work on the production side of the business. Let's go back to the beginning, Jody. Where are you from? I'm from a small little town called Uxbridge, Ontario. It's about 90 minutes northeast of uh, Toronto. What was life like growing up in Uxbridge? It was difficult. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Um, I'm from a mixed race uh, background. And in the town back in the 80s, there wasn't very many people who looked like me. So uh, definitely there was some bullying based on uh, the way I looked. Um, and also it was a bit of a, you know, it's a farm community at the time. It's definitely grown since then. But you know, there wasn't a lot to do for, for kids uh, my age. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, we, we rode our bikes around the town, you know, went to local arcade. But other than that, it was it was very hard to do things without getting in trouble in Uxbridge. Okay, so what was your local arcade game? You threw that out there? Mortal Kombat, <laughs> my local arcade, Street Fighter? I, I, Street Fighter is good. I, I like Gauntlet a lot better, though. Um, oh, okay. There's yeah. one I haven't heard in a while. You know, definitely when you could have four people playing at the same time, that was always uh, always fun to do that. Uh, but yeah, Street Fighter, Gauntlet, Mortal Kombat, they were all sort of the big ones at the time. Did you move around or did you uh, stay in Uxbridge most of your life? I was in Uxbridge for the first 13 years of my life. And then my uh, parents uh, got divorced. My father moved to another small town called Port Perry, which is about 15 minutes from Uxbridge. Uh, so I spent half the time there and half the time in Uxbridge. And then as soon as I could, I got out of both of those towns and moved to Toronto at the age of 18. Okay, so you and I had uh, similar interests growing up. You were big into sports cards and yeah. you were sports cards, I should say. And you were also very big into comic books. I want to start with the uh, with the latter first, though. What character did you collect? Um, I was coming up around the time that uh, there was these two new sort of uh, comic lines called Image and Va Valiant uh, launch. So Image launched with a uh, character named Spawn, and Valiant had I think there was a one called Young Blood. Um, I can't remember the rest of them at the time, um, but they were sort of the two that I really got into. I was I sort of missed the the Marvel sort of explosion uh, when I was sort of starting collecting comics. They were going splitting up like X-Men and things like that. I did get into a bit of uh, Batman and, and especially when, you know, the whole thing with Bane, uh, the whole thing with the death of Superman, all those sort of mid-90s uh, uh, big events in the comic world I got into. What attracted you to Spawn? Because it's very hard to deviate from DC and Marvel. And I remember when Todd McFarlane broke away and said, you know what, I'm doing my own thing with my own company and started Spawn. It just seemed like a, a different way of telling stories at the time and you know the the i found the art just so amazing um that was in in the spawn comics and yeah it just felt like a little bit fun and i felt like you know as i said i felt like the marvel was getting a bit gimmicky with with the way they were splitting everything up even like when they relaunched uh spider-man like i just and they had like six different covers it was just all i found a bit too gimmicky so i i did want to you know i, I found spawn a little bit more truer to what I, I thought comic books were supposed to be. And what about sports cards, which for the younger people listening were NFTs before there were NFTs? <laughs> yeah. So 
you know, my dad, it was a way for me and my dad to sort of connect. I, I found it was, um, you know, we, we would, he would buy them obviously when I was younger. Um, and then, you know, we would sort of look through them and see what we had and, and things like that it is again, before sort of the boom in sports cards in, in the nineties, I, you know, had a lot of the OPG sets, um, and then a baseball side, a lot of tops and flair. Um, and then like, late 80s mid 90s everybody and their brothers got into sports card and became a flooded market um i still was into it but then sort of you know at the time started you know making my own money so i would, I would buy some of the older stuff and try to you know get things like that and i was really into you know trying to build up my collection but go sort of the older way because I, I was seeing how like the newer cards were just like everybody as i said everybody was trying to get into it and trying to make a quick buck on it and it just sort of took the fun away did you lay them out in binders with those sheets or did you keep them vertical in those boxes where you had to pull out each one very carefully one by one? Uh, I did both. <laughs> I kept, I had some in, in binders, I had some in, in boxes and, you know, a lot of them in, in the hard case sleeves. I would, anyone that was like over $5, I would put into a hard case sleeve. Um, and then the ones that were really worth a lot of money, there was those cases that had the screws that you had to screw them into. Yeah, I remember those. <laughs> And, and then even, you know, a few I, I kept in the in the unsealed wax. So there's I still have a few boxes somewhere in my house uh, that haven't been opened. Is there a particular card that you can't let go of, like a very special one? Yeah, I do have a Gretzky rookie. It's not. Even, oh, damn. It's not, it's not the oh. big mint uh, condition. It has a bit of rough corner on it. Um, but yeah, that's that's definitely the, uh, the prize possession. Here, funny story for you about priceless objects not in great condition. Going back to how you were a Spawn fan, mm -hmm. I remember being in the eighth grade and I was big into comic books and I saw these kids just trashing their comic books at recess. They were far younger than me in elementary school. <laughs> and it turned out the kid was holding it, it, it was Spawn number one. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just in horrible condition. Oh, now, granted, God. at that point, I think, I think. I think Spawn had had a monthly series for about four years at that point. Okay. So maybe they were about 50 issues deep. But I remember looking at that and being old enough going, what did you do? Yeah. Like that yeah. was just, oh. <laughs> do, you, do you kick yourself when you see that Gretzky rookie card and go, oh, my God. Um, that, that's freedom no. in plastic right there. Yeah, it's it's not, it's still in good enough condition that it's still worth a bit. It's just not in the best of condition. I, I, I sort of inherited that way. Like it was when I got it out of the pack, it wasn't in you know, it wasn't a hundred percent mint even when I got out of the pack. So I'm not too, uh, too concerned. <laughs> Why do you cite Mrs. McNally, your computer lab teacher as being one of your biggest influences growing up? As a child who was bullied, uh, in school, you lose a lot of confidence in yourself. Um, and she sort of saw something in me that not too many other people did. Um, she allowed me to, you know, there was, Computer science at the time was a very new sort of concept in high school that you took. Um, and I caught on to it pretty quickly. And she saw that I was very interested into it. So she's, you know, let me come back a year later to be sort of a volunteer co-op student. And then, you know, sort of showed me the ropes. She showed me how to put together a, you know, a, a class for a day. She showed me how to mark papers um, and just gave me the confidence to stand in front of people who, you know, I normally would not want to stand in front of. and be able to sort of address them um, in a sort of more authority way. So a lot of professional skills were developed under her. Yeah, for sure. Your first job ever, did it even feel like a job working at a, a collectible store? <laughs> no, it didn't. It, it, it's interesting story. So um, it was in, in the town Port Perry that I spoke about. It was called Twice Told Tales. It was a comic book card store and also sold paperbacks, used paperbacks. Um, so it was in there one day. I used, uh, would go in there, you know, maybe once a week and, and buy something um, or, you know, with my dad, would go in there and buy some stuff. And um, a gentleman was in there and he was, you know, talking to the owner and he was claiming something that I knew wasn't true about uh, Hockey Yard. So I sort of stood up and said, you know, that that's not true at all. This That player does not appear in that hockey card set. Um, and the guy didn't believe me at all. And was certainly, you know, started a little argument with the, with the 12 year old at the time. And, um, finally he laughed and the, the boss, uh, the owner of the store said, you know, a lot about cards. I want you to come work for me. I'm like, okay. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, you know, I spent time there, um, helping selling cards, sorting cards, you know, just hanging out, selling comics. It was just, you know, it was pretty much a teenage boy's dream come true. 
Reading a lot of comics too, I imagine. Yeah, reading comics, you know, and you know, there was a little bit of a discount working there, so I was able to uh, have my collection grow pretty quickly. There was a comic shop I used to I used to frequent in Etobicoke called Pendragon, and they had this system set up where if you prepaid for your comics, they would hold on to them because mm-hmm. what was it? Tuesday was the, was it Wednesday? I could have I sworn Wednesday. That, yeah, I think Wednesday was the drop date for comics. And then about a couple of years ago, DC said, "Screw it, we're moving it to Tuesday." Because they wanted to drop their, they wanted to publish and drop a day before Marvel and everyone else did. But did they have a system set up like that? Because they'd only get a limited number of comics in. Yeah, they did. So you could sort of reserve titles, um, as as you said, like you could prepay. And like some people, you know, they would have six or seven titles they get a week. Some would only have one or two. And yeah, they would just do that. Like you could say, these are, you know, I want cable, I want Deadpool. Here are my, uh, here's my money. <laughs> so when you're watching a comic book movie. And there's a reference to a very specific story that only us passionate comic book lovers <laughs> would recognize. Do you go all nuts for that? Like I saw the flash this weekend and I was picking out stuff with my wife, like the dark Knight rises. Right. I remember, I remember going off about that going, this is because you already made reference to Bane. I go, this is nightfall and cataclysm and no man's <laughs> land put together. And people are like, Oh, but do you get like that too? When you're watching those movies? No, I, I don't think I do. Like I, I've sort of, you know, other than really maybe Sandman, I don't feel like I remember too much because I, I kind of stopped in my early 20s. Um, so it was, you know, a six to eight year period that I was really into it. So other than, as I said, like Sandman I, and maybe maybe some Batman stuff, I don't really remember a, or not just just don't retain all that information the way that some people like yourself did. Oh, I don't know if I retained it or I just never let go of it. That's the best <laughs> way to put it. I'm 41 and I'm still reading whenever I can. Right? So what brought you to York University and why this eclectic mix of studying English communications and mass media? When I was finishing up high school, I really wanted to be a sportscaster, um, but I had a I had a bit of a problem. I had always grown up with a bit of a speech issue. Uh, there's some words I just can't say no matter how hard I try. I went through uh you know, had some speech classes when I was younger um, and, you know, they helped a bit, but there's still some words I couldn't do. So I, I knew deep down that I would never become a sportscaster because I just wouldn't be able to pronounce a lot of uh, players' names, especially uh, Europeans. Um, so I, you know, still wanted to do be in TV and radio. Um, so I just went ahead, I, you know, tried to get into Ryerson, which at the time was called Ryerson and, you know, obviously was sort of the big school to go into for for broadcast and media but didn't get past the wait list I you know got in got got to the interview stage but never got past that so York sort of offered um some interesting side to it like they offered a mass communication program so you figure out why people uh consume media um but didn't really offer any sort of technical side to things and I, I and I stuck with English because they you know they offered me a double major um and that was the other thing I was sort of interested in was reading um so I took that what sport did you want to uh cover uh hockey Are you a big hockey fan I take it I was and again like so much of my things change from what I was into as a teenager and young adult into what I am now like the switch between sort of sports and comics into media and music and movies and TV was sort of happened at a certain time and it's sort of everything (laughs) sort of pre that time was sports and comics and everything after that time was music movies and, and sort of books and TV. It's okay to admit you're a Leafs fan saddled with regrets. I'm not actually. uh, Not a Leafs fan. I was a huge Gretzky fan. Most of my cards were. Really? Yes, I was a big Edmonton fan. And then, um, you know, had, you know, spent a lot of my collection uh, in getting Gretzky stuff. So I followed him wherever he went. Okay. So then as a child, when he moved from Edmonton to L.A., what Mm -hmm. kind of impact did that have on you? Yeah, it was a big, (laughs) it was a big day. Like I remember the tears in the press conference and, you know, him leaving Edmonton and, you know, all of a sudden I had to become a Kings fan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so you followed him and became a Kings fan. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it was hard being a Kings fan in 1993 when everyone claims Gretzky high stick Gilmore. Um, (laughs) That's right. Cause yeah, we almost had a Canadians Leafs final. Right. Um, And then seeing, you know, seeing the Kings get past the Leafs and then, getting demolished by Montreal was was not fun. I saw the press release or not the press release. I saw the press conference 
on YouTube a couple of months back as I sort of remembered it, didn't really remember it. Mm-hmm. Never one was crying. And I'm like, why are we crying? He he gave the four <laughs> Stanley Cups. Like yeah. you're crying like he's de- like because that was the early 90s. Like he's defecting to the Soviet Union, like doing the reverse <laughs> of what like Fedorov and Pavel, Pavel Bray were doing. So right. and then heck, I mean, what happened after he left? The Oilers won another Stanley Oilers Cup without him. Yeah. I think it all worked out for Edmonton. That's for sure. They got the last laugh. They did. Yes. <laughs> after graduating from York, you re-enrolled into uh seneca and specifically you went into their radio and television broadcasting program so after graduation from york did you look at that and go maybe this is my chance to get into broadcasting maybe that maybe that path is still open for me right so not to correct you a bit but the york seneca program was actually a concurrent program so oh geez i got this backwards all right yeah no, no it's all good Oh, good. So York University uh, offered this special program to uh, eight students a year where you could attend York University and Seneca College at the same time after you completed one year at York. So myself and seven other students did this. Um, we from year two at York for so for a total of five years altogether, you're at York and Seneca. And you do half your time at York, half your time at Seneca reason why I did this is because, as I sort of mentioned earlier, York offered something on how, you know, the theory behind why people consume media and why they consume certain media in certain ways and that sort of thing. But they never offered anything technically on how to produce this content. So uh, Seneca did, and they offered a radio and television program. Um, and, you know, it allowed me to be more hands-on and uh, I think allowed me to learn everything I needed to learn to become uh, sort of an expert in this field. Did you apply for the Seneca program after your first year, during your first year, like even before yeah, was, entering York? It was during your first year at York that you could apply for it. Did you know about it going into York or was that a happy surprise for you when you started? No, I, I did. And that was also one of the reasons why after I got the no from Ryerson, I decided to uh, head over to York to see whether I could get into this program. And your first role in media started well before graduation. Would yeah. you say that? You said it was working the Canadian award show circuit. Yes. <laughs> give, give us an give. I mean, a lot of people listening to this are going to be familiar with the Gemini's and familiar with the Junos. Were they part of the award shows that you were working? And is there anything else in that mix that we're missing? Yeah. So it was late nineties. Um, the Junos were around the Gemini's, which were the best in television, the genies, which were the best in Canadian film and the NHL awards were all on CBC. Uh, and they sort of all had the same producers behind them so once you got onto one show um they kind of kept you around so you know i would i started off as just a production assistant helping out the producers basically most of my job was writing scripts when there was changes to you know to the talent or you know it was stapling stuff or you know like just helping out wherever you could really very you know didn't do much addition I wasn't much of an you know addition to the to the production but you know it was good enough to you know be someone who was part of it and someone that you need uh, on a team and then from there I moved up to someone who you made sure that people it was called a, a seat wrangler um leader so making sure that people had so when people go up to get awards there'd be an empty seat in the audience so you would make sure that volunteers would sit in those seats so that there would never be empty seats when the camera panned to the to the audience and then from there, I end up working uh, sort of as like a, a floor director or sort of work, working with the the talent themselves. So in the Junos, the, the last year that I worked with the Junos, um, Mike Bullard at the time was the host. So I was sort of his sort of wrangler, making sure that, you know, when the producer, you know, when Mike was in his dressing room and the producer needed him out on set to to go through some lines and stuff or go through lighting, I would be the one who had to go get him and uh, make sure he was at the right place at the right time. You mentioned that you were doing a lot of grunt work, but yeah. <laughs> how much did but how much did you learn that would inform your future self just by observing what was going on around you? Oh yeah, you learn a lot really quickly. Like you learn, I, I think for me, what I learned the most from that was just sort of like how important uh, having a solid lineup is, and how important having a solid script is, and also just the fact of the communication that making sure that everyone knows when there's a change that's happened, and that's you know that's what would happen a lot with. With these, you have different color scripts and making sure everyone was on the same page, same color script at the same time was uh, so key to having a successful show, especially when it was a live show. And how much anxiety did you have working on live shows? Because that can get very anxious. Yeah, I actually, you know, I think for me, I thrive in live. I really do think it's 
you know, for me, it's one of the most exciting ways of, of producing television. I didn't really have any anxiety around it. Uh, surprisingly, now when I look back on it, <laughs> you know, you you would think that I would, but no, I, I think it was it was just so exciting and so you have so much adrenaline going when when you're in a live um, environment because anything could change at any time. But also, you know, with these award shows, they were so pre-planned and so much rehearsal went into them, um, and you know, people were just experts at what they do. So, I, you know, there was no feeling that at any time that the show was going to, you know, go a different way than what it should. You had to have been exposed to some pretty big celebrities working the awards show scene. Were you starstruck when you started out or did you kind of have to, or could you just compartmentalize and treat them like just another colleague? Yeah, definitely. uh, I was, I wasn't starstruck, but I definitely treated them like another colleague. Um, I think, you know, when I look back on it, like some of the people that, you know, you know, Celine Dion, I, I think one of the, one of the things I remember the most, like Celine Dion's trailer, when I saw it and all the clothes that were there and, you know, all, everything that was sort of, you know, the guard, her guard standing outside of it, that sort of like struck me, but not in a starstruck way, just like in a way, like how big of a star she was, but not like that I was so, you know, taken back that, you know, that she it was Celine Dion like I just I respected who she was but I wasn't you know fanning over her um same with like Shania Twain um Our Lady Peace you know there was you know it was cool to see people who you know I would hear on the radio or see on tv up close and personal but I never really as you said never got starstruck but just really treated them as sort of like they were part of this team that was putting on these shows and they just had, had a much bigger role maybe than what we had Speaking of the radio, one of your earlier roles was w- working the overnight rotate. Was it the overnight uh, shift mm-hmm. at a mm-hmm. classical music, a, a classic music station? W- which yes. station was it? Uh, classical ninety six point three in Toronto. Were you a uh, fan of classic music at the time? No, uh, I would, didn't hate it, but I wasn't a fan of it. So you know, when I was in school, in you know, I did, I did schooling on my own, right? Like I, as I said, I moved. To Toronto, I was 18, so I was paying rent. Uh, I got a little bit of OSEP, but not enough to help cover everything for going, especially for going to two schools. Um, you know, so I had to find a way to to make money. And you know, these award show gigs were, you know, there was four years, so like, and the, I was only, I really was only part of it for like a week or or two at most. Um, so you know, I needed to find other ways to make money. Um, so and not impact my schooling. So overnights was a good way to do that and you know think with overnights as well they're more willing to take on you know inexperienced people so um yeah i worked the overnight shift at, at the classical radio station so most times the host would check out i would i would be there anytime you know between 10 or 11 and the host would usually check out by 12 so from like 12 to 5 i was the only person in the in the building uh pre-playing you know his taped um throws to to the songs they were all on tape and then, you know, being a classical radio station, a lot of the pieces obviously were, were quite long, so it could get quite boring at times when you, you know, you're playing a 27 piece, 27 minute piece of music and being the only person in the building. So there's a lot of reading, um, trying to, you know, you'd walk around the building, try to stay awake, um, drinking a lot of coffee. And then the news guy would usually come in between four or five to do his first sort of newscast around six or seven. Do you throw yourself into the genre though, just so you can be a little bit more enthusiastic when you are? in between sets or in between tracks yeah you know i discovered a you know a love for certain certain composers um while i was there but but yeah it was hard <laughs> you know nothing i think you know there's some really great great classical music it, it one of the interesting things part about the job is that so the four or five hours was programmed by somebody you know once you add in the in the taped uh vo's from from the announcer um sometimes there'd be some you know gaps of how long uh of music there is so sometimes you know there'd be two minutes where i would have to pick what i got to fill the two minutes with um so that was always cool and i would sometimes go to stuff that we don't usually play so sometimes like you know it might be you know something from the uh from the peanuts or it might be you know a star wars theme or i might go to you know somebody else they haven't played in a while just to, to throw it in there to, to to give me a little bit of excitement <laughs> so john williams yeah. was classified as classical then yes that counted okay i yeah. wasn't sure if the crtc would come in and be like 
it's not old enough. It's from the seventies. We got to go back <laughs> to like maybe the seventeen seventies for it to count. No, I I think we and I can't remember all the rules, but I think with classical, long as it was you know basically or, orchestral um, of some point, um, you know there was some definitely some people who were new to it that they would play. Um, I think it's just as long as it's fit into the sort of aspect of what classical music can be. You also did a stint early on at Much Music, and this mm-hmm. kind of paved your way to Alliance Atlantis. So explain mm-hmm. to us how working at Much Music paved your way to becoming a producer among a, a number of things, because you were a producer, studio producer on a number of shows within the sort of Alliance Atlantis Can West, because I know that company's gone through a number of iterations over the yes. last 20 years. <laughs> yeah. But explain to us how at least you got your foot in the door as a producer via Much Music to Alliance Atlantis. And yes. also to let us know what a producer does, because that is a quite the umbrella term in the industry. It is. So, uh, yeah, I was an intern at Much in 1999 um, and, you know, was a great experience. I learned a lot at Much Music, um, saw, a, you know, a lot of things and ended up doing a little bit of work there as well. You know, there was a show called uh, Spotlight back then, which was basically they would pick an artist like uh you know someone big back then like stone temple pilots or red hot chili peppers and you would sort of go through their career based on the interviews that had been done at much in the past mix in some music videos in between and sort of tell a story that way and that was sort of my first sort of foot at learning how to tell a story you know from beginning to end um using interview clips and using you know music videos and using b-roll to sort of tell a story so i I learned that from much music there um but at the time two of the producers who i worked uh very closely with were leaving much music to go to alliance atlantis because alliance atlantis was launching um a new thing called u8 tv uh, the letter u number eight tv um, which was going to be the home to a reality show called the lofters um so when they left um i decided to go with them to there and started off as an ap there um it was associate producer and then became a producer uh probably in the second season that it was on air back to being what a producer is it, it depends a lot on the place where you're working i think the definition of producer as you said has a lot of different um titles has a lot of different descriptions to it depending again where you work um as a producer there uh my job was to find guests to be on the show uh we produced a not let me sort of back that up a bit so uatv the idea of it was there was eight people living in a loft in downtown toronto their lives were filmed 24 7 um and then that that storyline was then told uh, on a show called The Lofters, which aired on, at the time on a, sh- on a network called Life Network, which is now Slice. Um, and that was a 30-minute daily show. Part of their uh, reason for living a loft in downtown Toronto was they were hosting internet TV shows, um, anything called anything from uh, based on music, on news, movies. Um, some of these shows actually got onto broadcast as well. So there was a show called U8 on Film, which I was one of the producers on, which was also aired on the Independent Film Channel, and another one called uh, So Gay TV, which aired on uh, the Pride Network um, in in Ontario at the time. Um, so uh, my job as a producer was to book the guests for it, to work with the other producer to help come up with questions, to maybe write some write some of the script, um, to you know, source out material that you would need uh, for that. So if you're talking about a certain film, so I remember one of the, one of the things we did was um, at the time, uh, Mulholland Falls by David Lynch was out. Um, so what we had to do was, you know, get the film clips cleared, get set up interviews with people like Naomi Watts, who was a star in that, and then find some people to come into um, the loft where these uh, um, hosts lived and worked and to sort of have a debate with them uh, about, you know, was this a good film? What was David Lynch trying to accomplish? So I would book some film critics or I would build, book a fellow director and they would come in and uh, sort of talk about the film in a sort of uh, smart way, intelligent way. How difficult is it to hunt for people at the last second to come on film and just, or just come on television and be part of the segments? Because that's got to be pretty stressful. Like, do you always have someone in the background who's like, okay, you're a plan B in case plan A doesn't work out? Yeah, so that mostly that role is, is called a chase producer. And, and there's some chase producers who, you know, that I know who are 
who are absolutely amazing and they can get basically anyone <laughs> anytime uh and they're really good at it. and there's some chase producers who you know have to a lot of times depend on plan b i think i was probably somewhere in the middle um i i think you know it is hard there's some people though who, you know who you know it's it's not only I, I think the harder thing is to get good people to be on tv i think it's easier to get people to be on tv and to be on shows it's hard to get someone who is really good to be on TV and be available when you need them to be. <laughs> when you look back at some of the guests you booked for that show, mm -hmm. are there any ones where you're just like, ooh, they oversold themselves? Like you were watching, you were watching the taping happen and you're just like, ah, oh, maybe I could have gone with someone else. But it still went to air and it was fine. But you know deep down that maybe, maybe they should have been third or fourth on your list. You know, I think a lot of the people that who we had, you know, were were pretty good. Like I think I was lucky to find find good people I, and if if someone was bad it's i've sort of blocked it out of my memory now and not uh thought about it but yeah i think you know that will happen sometimes but usually you know again like as a producer and one of the other things that i got to do um as a producer was be in, in the control room with the with the technical crew and be the person who would be in the you know the host ears like they were an IP, IP piece and I would sort of you know direct them or tell them you know sort of if someone wasn't strong to maybe ask questions to to the other person so that you would sort of limit how much they would be seen on tv the people who were a little bit weaker and just focus really on the stronger people how about when you're writing scripts with the talent or you're writing scripts for the talent. How many times do they send it back and go, I would never say this? Or do you work with them on the dialogue? Do you like give them a foundation and they will edit it from there and make it their own? And if they do that, do they have to run it by you so you're not surprised when you're on camera or when they're on camera saying something that you didn't agree to or you didn't write for them? Um, each talent is, is different and you have to approach them sort of differently. So there's some talent who you will know their voice right away and you, you know, they what you write will 99% of it will be what they will say. Um, there's other talent who will come to you and be like, you know, this is not, I would never say this in real life. So I'm never going to say it on television. So there'd be some words that, you know, that I would say are very TV like that again, and you know, this, um, you know, things that people don't say in their real life. So you would have to try to make it a little bit more conversational. Cause I think that's one of the things that we fall traps or fall into as producers or writers is that you write, thinking, you know, this is what someone on TV should say. And and you get out of that pretty quickly when, especially when you have a talent who says, you know, this is something I would never say, try to make it more conversational. So there's that. And then I think you're right. Like if they will, you know, sometimes there'll be sort of a, a work where you'll be working with them. They'll be like, no, I wouldn't say that. And you would go back, you would change it and represent it to them and, and see what they say. But most of the times, like it, it really is. And that's really a good sign of a good relationship between producer and, and talent is that you will know what their voice is and you write with their voice in mind not with your voice in mind what is toronto one because that's where your career took you <laughs> next as, a, as yeah. a senior producer and i gotta be honest i don't remember toronto one i don't know if it still exists or if it exists under a different name but yeah give us uh, the synopsis there yeah so toronto one was uh back in 2003 there was a company called the craig network out west um and they had a, a channel called the a channel and another channel i can't remember off the top of my head and they came to ontario and they brought you know they launched a new television station and they called it toronto one um i think toronto one was definitely a station that was ahead of its time in what it was trying to do it was you know trying to be a station that was really diverse and featuring you know a lot of different people from a lot of different cultures um it was telling news stories and a lot more entertaining way um it was sort of the first place where i sort of remember um you know place that would add music to news stories and and you know would add sound effects to stories and really definitely you know was trying to take the way that people consume news and make it a lot less newsy and more sort of again back to the sort of conversational and more ways that people could sort of understand it a lot better um so yeah it was it was on i believe on channel 15 uh if you had a cable back then um and yeah it, it lasted for a couple of years then sun uh sun media bought it and turned it into this you know i guess a, a version of sun tv um and then i'm not sure what happened after that but i know that it no longer exists 
So what was being a senior producer like? Like, how did that differ from being a producer mm -hmm. uh, in your previous roles? So at the time uh, when it first launched, my job was sort of to oversee all the entertainment content on the uh, the news show um, called Toronto Tonight. Um, so really, the, you know, it was just a producer at the time. Then they decided um, to launch an entertainment show called The A-List. So my job as a senior producer was to sort of oversee this sort of content on that show. Um, we had a writer who and a writer who writer who worked with me, and she was also a producer, and she produced some of the segments. And then I had four talent um, who worked on the show. Um, so I worked with you know another with the executive producer trying to figure out the lineup of the show. I would then sort of do the lineup of the show. You know, you know, we would talk about these news stories off the top. We would slot this interview into this. You know, after the first commercial break, we would do this interview in the third. You know, or we do the segment about, you know, movies coming to TIFF in this this area. So it was really about trying to figure out the sort of flow of the show, then working with the writer, making sure that she knew how the show was flowing and, and you know, that she was definitely following this sort of path of the lineup and then working with the talent to make sure they understood sort of what was happening. And then I would also be the person who decides which talent went out to interview which stars and um, decide on which which interviews we want to do and which ones we wouldn't do. Have you ever watched the show, The Morning Show on Apple TV Plus? Mm -hmm. Hopefully you don't have that level of drama that they experience because no. that show gives me anxiety. But yeah, like Billy Kudrip's character, were you usually behind the camera when they were rolling or were you in the control room? Were you leading those meetings, those pre-production meetings as well? How does, how does what you do compare to what, what we're being shown on that program? Uh, again, it would depend on, on the show I was working on. When I was at the A-list uh, on Toronto One, um, a lot of it was just, I was just behind the scenes. I wasn't in the in the control room when, when that was going to air. There would be another producer and a director doing that. Um, and we shot it in a different way. So the morning show is, is a live show. It was, you know, shot from whenever they start to when we're done. And, you know, they roll back tape uh, or do live interviews. Um, this show was packaged um, on a daily basis. So we would shoot the reporter stuff at a different time um, and then put that together with the tape pieces that were already done and sort of um, edited through a control room. When I was, when I did live shows at, at Entertainment Tonight Canada, then I would definitely be in the control room with the director, talking to the talent through their IFB uh, and making sure, making sure the show went, you know, from top to bottom the way it should. Okay, perfect segue into ET Canada. Mm -hmm. So it seems it seems like the A list was trying to do what ET Canada was going to do before they were around. Yes. Was that kind of the pathway? Like when they were starting ET Canada, did the people working on that show look to the A list and go, look, we've got to get those people over here? They've already got the experience we need. Funny enough, the executive producer at Toronto One who was on A list left. Toronto One to go to Global TV to launch Entertainment Tonight Canada, Seb Shalev. I worked with him also at uh, The Lofters, um, where he was the executive producer there as well. So he was the EP um, who started Entertainment Tonight Canada. He brought over myself, um, Roz Weston, who was uh, one of the hosts on the A-list, who became one of the reporters on Entertainment Tonight Canada. He brought over our director, uh, another producer, our technical director, and a probably a couple other people. So it was a bit of a, um, you know, at the time, definitely the people who were at Toronto One weren't happy with what was happening. Um, but at the same time, I think the people at Toronto One saw the writing on the walls of the, the station wasn't going to be around for much longer. Um, and I think a lot of us saw that too. So we, we definitely took this new opportunity and, you know, being a brand like Entertainment Tonight, that's a worldwide brand. Um, I think we all felt like this was the right sort of step for us to sort of move into that that world um and yeah it was you know definitely a, you know there were definitely aspects of what we did at the a-list that continued on to et but you know a lot of it was definitely new because this is you know as again i said this entertainment tonight is you know the number one brand when it comes to entertainment news so they knew what they were doing and you know we learned a lot from from our fellow um producers in the states on how to do an entertainment show and how to do it properly how was that different then from the a-list because you guys were covering the exact same topics you could almost say it's like coke versus pepsi i mean that might not be an accurate comparison but you're both in the same business trying to do the same thing and competing for eyeballs 
because assuming you're on at the same time, everyone watching the A-list is unlikely to watch ET Canada and vice versa. I would say more of is it was be a comparison between Coke and Tab. <laughs> um, okay. Tab and Entertainment Tonight Canada being Coke. Um, budget was obviously a huge thing. Um, you know, it, global being a major network that was seen everywhere in Canada. Well, you know, Toronto One was you know, a local station. Uh, definitely had an impact. Um, having a brand like Entertainment Tonight behind behind you gets you into a lot of. Um, gets you into a lot of rooms that you don't get into if you're not in entertainment tonight. So there's that. And also just like, you know, the sort of quality that ET uh, in the States does. Um, you know, I, I would say A-list was we were a fighting bunch. And I think it sometimes showed on on broadcast because we didn't have the same access that an entertainment tonight tonight gets. Um, so a lot of times it was us sort of, you know, making up stories, not not making up stories as fake news, but, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what is, you know, if you can't talk to the star at the time, how do you talk about the star? So it would be, you know, we would be talking about J-Lo, um, you know, being with the first round of J-Lo and, and Ben Affleck together. You'd be talking about it using clips from from Geely or using, you know, B-roll them out at the red carpet. Well, if you're at Entertainment Tonight, you would get interviews with J-Lo and Ben. It'd be a lot easier to tell a story. You were promoted to executive producer. Mm-hmm. That seems to be like the top level title. It is. Any produ- <laughs> like that can be bestowed upon a producer. I've always wondered, is it more about the business side when you become an executive producer? Like it's, you still have, you still have one hand on the creative aspect of it, but now you might be you might be fidgeting with budgets and looking at the numbers a little bit more than say, for example, if you're just, I don't know what the opposite of an executive producer is just a regular producer or a studio producer, but was that the case when you became executive producer? Yeah. So before I was, before I was the supervising producer at ET Canada and so that role, you know, I led a team of producers, uh, they would all report into me and the lineup and the content sort of was my sort of final this you know was my decision to make but obviously the ep at the time could say yeah yay or nay to things but yeah when you move into ep your your concern is a lot more than just the daily show you're you're looking at everything from the brand right and you're you know you you would deal with talent um uh the people who are on, on camera you would you know the producers would you know you would have a management team that you would work with who would all have people underneath them who you know they would have to you know they would deal with their own issues and they bring to you so you would have a, a manager who was in charge of editors or camera people or the control room and they would come you know they would meet with you and say you know our director thinks this and like what you know can we get you know new cameras and then you would have to look at the budget and work with a production manager who's in charge of the budget and try to figure out you know if you are going to spend this year on new cameras or you know you're going to spend the money this year on redoing the studio what then are you not going to spend money on and sort of try to figure that out and you know as time went by you know budgets got tighter and tighter and tighter and you have to figure out how to do more with less um but yeah the the executive producer again it depends on the show and the industry and the part of the industry you're working in but they would can be anywhere from being very hands-on with the still being very hands-on with what goes the air or they can be very hands-off and really focus a lot on the business when you look at an executive producer especially in film a lot of that is really doing with the money and the finance and have very little to do with the creative i find executive producers in television especially on a daily show like entertainment tonight canada is very they still have a lot to say about what goes to air and especially like if it's you know sort of outside of the daily show so if you're doing a special or if you're doing you know Oh, you know, series on something, they would have a lot more to say in that sort of realm. Who is the biggest star you've ever met or covered? Probably Tom Cruise. You were there in the background while they were doing an interview with him. And it's funny, Tom Cruise has done so many movies, but the only thing I can think of is Mission Impossible. It seems like he's got a new, <laughs> it seems like since like 96, he's got, he's had a new Mission Impossible movie every two to three years. Yeah, he has. And then bring back Top Gun uh, last year. That That's true. Top Gun as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Tom, um, did come into our studio um once we've done many interviews with him where we've gone to him but he did come to to toronto and came up to uh the global tv uh, studios uh, where et canada is filmed and you know came in with a, a bit of an entourage um it was just after he had his uh child suri with when he was with katie um and yeah he came in but the thing about tom that i think 
is different from a lot of other stars is that he knows how, how to be a star in a room. He went up to, you know, the, to the floor director, to the audio person, to anyone who was sort of around him and sort of said hi and, you know, was very nice to everybody and made sure that people felt important, um, which I think is a rare thing these days. Um, sometimes, you know, that that is missed when you uh, get to the level of Tom Cruise. Um, but yeah, he, you know, he, he treated everyone quite well when he was in when he was in their presence. I think I remember that moment because I was working at the CBC at the time in the media sales and marketing department, and he was coming in to do George Drombolopoulos's show. Mm-hmm. And literally the whole building shut down for that. Yeah. <laughs> not like with not like with security, but anyone who wanted to try to get into or anyone who wanted to would try to get into the studio just to watch that. <laughs> and they usually had a couple of tickets kicking around just right. to, like you said, to fill seats if you wanted to stand at the back. But this was a big one. Like everyone was trying to get in to see Tom Cruise. And I, and it was, I think, 2006, 2007. Yeah. Pretty sure it had to do with the Mission Impossible movie. but Maybe for George, but we were doing it for uh, um, I can't remember what it was called, but it had to do with um, World War Two and Germany. Um, oh, God. Yeah, that was. Um, oh, uh, Valkyrie. Yes, that's it. Valkyrie. Yes, I yeah. remember that one. I had a friend who a friend at a previous job of mine who would go on and on about Tom Cruise being the last leading man in Hollywood and that that whole term or that construct was dying off. And to be honest with you, I kind of laughed when he'd said it like, that's not true. <laughs> but seeing but seeing what Top Gun Maverick did for movie theaters coming mm-hmm. out of the pandemic and how he fought tooth and nail to keep it from going to Paramount Plus. Yeah. And, the, and just the amount of money it made. And it wasn't a comic book movie or a Star Wars movie or a Harry Potter movie. I kind of have to agree. And yeah, even so even too. seeing even seeing like the trailer for the new Mission Impossible. I don't know about you, but it kind of it reminds me of action films in the 90s and in the 80s, where it's like if we're going to blow up a truck, we are going to buy a truck and we're going to blow it up, and we'll have three more and we'll do three more takes. It's not like <laughs> it's not like well, here's the green screen, we'll put the mountains in the background, and then and then the computers will blow up a truck that's not there. Like he does yeah. a lot of in camera stuff. That's what I'm he does. He does a lot of his own stunts, uh, hanging off planes, and you know, you know, you hear himself once. Uh, oh God, I know which stunt you're referring to. Yeah, that yeah, plane. Oh, God. Yeah. So, um, you know, Tom is, I think, you know, definitely, if not the last one, one of the, you know, definitely one of the biggest stars. He's still one of the few people who can draw. You know, he sure he's had some movies that haven't done well, but he's still one of the few people who can draw a huge audience just on his name alone. Jody, this has been a wonderful chat. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? I think so. I think so. <laughs> nothing the, too crazy. <laughs> no, nothing crazy. The production yeah. you are most proud of? Uh, definitely be, we did a New Year's Eve special for five years uh, in Niagara Falls uh, when I was at ET Canada. It was called ET Canada's New Year's Eve at Niagara Falls. Uh, the last one that we ever did, I think, would be the one I'm most proud of. Um, it had Keith Urban was headlining it um nick jonas was performing when he went solo we had sean mendez on before he was sort of sean mendez uh him and nick did a duet together which was pretty amazing uh lights was there as well and uh we did a had celine dion come sort of from vegas she, she did a performance from vegas that we we taped and showed live on on the show there was about sixty thousand people in the audience in niagara falls at the uh Midnight, the stroke of midnight, we had uh, over 4 million Canadians watching from home um, and, you know, a team of hundreds putting that show together. Uh, it was just an amazing experience and one of the, you know, one that I look back on most fondly. Your favorite movie? I would say Notting Hill because I am a big rom-com fan and a Hugh Grant friend. And I think just the chemistry between him, him and Julia Roberts in that movie, um, I, I can watch that movie so many times and still like it. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, mm-hmm. who would you want to play you? I would say Jake Gyllenhaal only because, and I don't look anything like Jake Gyllenhaal, but when I was first introduced to my wife, um, it was through a colleague in, in Global Montreal, and she worked in Montreal as well. Um, someone said they knew who I was, and it was just in Toronto, and they had had you know hung out with me at an event, and they said I looked just like Jake Gyllenhaal. And you know, it's sort of become an inside joke between me and my wife. Um, that I do not look like Jake Gyllenhaal, so I think that would make the most sense for him to play me. <laughs> so my follow-up question, if Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would you call it? I would say A Boy Named Jody, because uh, I don't know how many times um, I've got emails back um, 
saying hello ladies or uh people, oh, will, meet, people will meet for the first time and they're shocked that i i'm a guy um so yeah that's i'll go with a boy named jody your favorite book I would say right now the favorite book I've read uh, in a while is called Tomorrow, Tomorrow, Tomorrow. It's about um, these friends who make uh, a video game. Um, and, you know, it goes through sort of the challenges of a male-female relationship uh, on a friend base, on a basis when you become colleagues with each other and work together. Um, and sort of like what it's like when you see, you know, from a male perspective, what it's like when you see your female friends start dating somebody and how that affects your working relationship. Um, and just the whole concept of, you know, making video games and how they went about it, about it. I just was so intrigued by it. I think it's a really good read. Your favorite song? Uh, it would be Jolene by Dolly Parton. The best advice you have ever received? Best advice I ever received is when you're thinking about where you want to go in your career, think about where you want to be in 10 years and then look at someone who's maybe in that position and think of, look at what steps they took to get there. Um, I think a lot of people, especially uh, I tell this advice back to, you know, when I have interns come into my office and want to ask me like, you know, how did I get to where I was or things like that is that I'm like, you know, where do you want to be in 10 years? They give me an answer. And I'm like, now think about how you get to that. And because a lot of people will just be like, oh, I want to be that position tomorrow. And you're not going to be that position tomorrow. There are the odd times where, you know, there will be the stories you'll hear about someone becoming something very quickly, but 99% of the time, you won't be that person the next day. You have to work on it and you have to think about how you're going to get to that path. It's almost like you're crossing a river. Make sure you see where that next stone is. You don't, you, you go for the next stone. You don't go for, you know, the end of the shoreline. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? I think I'd be a writer. Um, I would did a lot of, you know, even with when I was at York, I was did a lot of short story writing. Uh, when I was a kid, I you know was into writing a lot, and I just also just finished. I wrote my first children's book uh, that came out in November, and now working on my second. So I think I would possibly be a fictional writer. And Jody, where can they get the book? Uh, they can get it at jodydavis.ca. And you're freelancing right now, so if anyone is looking for someone with your talents, how can they reach out to you? Yeah, they can either connect with me on LinkedIn, I'm there, or they can, uh, I think that's probably the best way, just find me on on, on LinkedIn. Um, you know, if someone's looking for someone, whether it's an executive producer role, a showrunner, or someone to help them, you know, come in as a consultant and look at what they're doing and try to make some, some suggestions on how to do things smarter and uh, have a better return on investment, I'm your man. So they can just slide into your LinkedIn DMs? Just slide in, yeah. <laughs> All right. Jody, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Victor. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca, your favorite podcast platform, or youtube.com slash at mediapeoplepodcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.